Well, good morning. It's kind of encouraging and or creepy. Thank you. So let me start by saying um, that it is indeed, I mean this sincerely, a privilege to be up here this morning, um, but I hope you won't hold it against me if I don't say that it's a pleasure. Okay, it's not quite a pleasure for me to be up here, and it's got nothing to do with you. You're all pleasant. Uh, no, no question about that. It's, it's me. It's not you. Okay, so I, I even like some of you who will remain nameless, but... It turns out that I suffer from a moderate anxiety disorder that leaves me subject to panic attacks. Some of you will know what I'm talking about when I mention panic attacks because you've had them, in which case I'm sorry, but, you know, solidarity. Uh, and some of you won't know exactly what I'm talking about, so let me give a, just a little description. A panic attack involves something like having the full-blown experience of mind-numbing terror but with no object for that terror. So there's nothing to really run from or punch. You're just stuck with the experience. So it involves your pulse racing and your blood pressure spiking with your vision narrowing. I'm worried I'm going to give some of you a panic attack with the description, but, you know, get it out there. Uh, Your chest constricting, your palms sweating. Your mind goes strangely blank in the middle of a panic attack. So are you familiar with the fainting goats? (laughs) Bye, buddy. Scoop. And there he goes. Okay, so I show you that because in a panic attack, that's about what happens in my brain, Um, only it's a little less cute and whimsical than that when it's happening. In fact, it's not uncommon for those who are having their first panic attacks to end up in the emergency room worrying that they've had a heart attack. And the most common descriptions of panic attacks are that the person who is having one thinks either that they're about to die or that they're about to go crazy. They're going to lose their mind. So, you know, the point is that panic attacks are very uncomfortable. And often those of us who have had them, we start worrying about whether we're going to have them again. We start avoiding circumstances in which we, we think we might have them. And pretty soon our lives have gotten rather small and fear filled because we're trying to avoid them. Now, the good news in my case is that my anxiety is pretty well managed these days. Mine responds responds quite positively to low doses of medication, and I've learned some cognitive behavioral skills that help. Still, I'll bet you can guess at the kinds of circumstances in which things would stress me out and make me inclined to have a panic attack. Can you think of any situations like that? 
Yeah, public speaking is one of these. Yeah, yeah. Talking in front of large groups of people with the lights on you and in which you um, have to speak for the living God. <clears throat> in fact, my very first full-blown panic attack occurred in this sanctuary right there. I was, I was in that spot. So I think I've cleansed it. So I think it's fine. You've got nothing to worry about. And uh, I was standing over there. It was about two decades ago. It was 20 years ago. And I was once again, I was supposed to be the preacher for that morning. And just before I was supposed to step up and start my sermon, boom, it hit me like a wave of mental nausea. And I knew just enough at that time to know that it was probably a panic attack and that it was probably going to pass. But I still found myself seriously while I was standing there thinking, what is everybody in this room going to do for the next half hour? Because I am running out. And I literally had the image of me bolting down that aisle and out the door and being gone. Now, fortunately, it passed just before I stood up. But that was the beginning 20 years ago of my life living with panic and anxiety. Now, why have I told you about this? Well, first of all, obviously for sympathy, right? Because sympathy is a good way of getting the audience's, it's a good rhetorical device for getting the audience's attention. But the really deep reason that I've started by telling you about my anxiety is that our sermon series has us thinking about where God is when things are hard. And maybe we can pause here and make fun of Pastor Bill and the staff for picking this as our feel-good summer theme. Um, it, does, it seems to me, no one asked, but it feels to me more like a winter theme than a summer theme. But, you know, winter's coming, I suppose. So, In my own case, the most concrete experience that I've had of facing our question of where God is when it's hard has come by way of my dealing with my anxiety and with the challenges that it has presented for my life and for my calling. And so I don't want our reflections together this morning to be purely theoretical, though, as a philosopher, things theoretical uh, are something I deeply love. Instead, though, I want our thinking about hardship and suffering this morning to be concrete and honest. And so I've given you a glimpse into my anxiety, and I'd like to invite you now to bring before your mind your own real concrete hardships. So allow yourself to consider what circumstances or challenges in your life have most burdened you. And one way to get to the heart of the matter is to ask yourself this question. What forms of suffering or trials in your life have you faced that have made you at least wonder if perhaps there is no God and Christianity is just a pipe dream? Maybe it's something you've had to endure. Maybe it's something you've had to watch a loved one endure. Maybe you're undergoing it right now, here this morning. <clears throat> so I don't want our topic to be too theoretical, and so that's why I've asked you to bring this to mind. But now with that concrete case in mind, I want to encourage you this morning. I'm going to do that by insisting that in the midst of our hardships, God has a plan for us. That plan is for peace in Christ's presence. His plan for us in the midst of our hardship is peace in Christ's presence. So I'm going to try to persuade you of that this morning. And the focus of our attention is going to be uh, on a single verse from the Gospel of John, chapter 16. So let me ask you to turn to John 16, your Bible or your Bible app. 
How many people use a Bible app? Okay, just, just checking. It's going to be more and more, I assume, right? If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to take it. We've got more, trust me. Okay. So now while you're looking for John 16, 33, let me put this verse in a little bit of context. The verse we're looking at is actually the final couple sentences of John's presentation of Jesus' last speech to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So it's sometimes called the farewell discourse, and it runs roughly through chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John. And we're going to think a little bit further about the overall content of that sermon shortly. But for now, just take notice of this crucial little fact. And it's that this is Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. So think about what it must be like to be hearing these last words. And now as he comes to the close of this sermon, the last things he wants to say to them before he departs, and hears his finishing sentence of that sermon. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I can't help celebrating the striking realism in Jesus about suffering here. So unlike some who'd have us think that the Christian life is supposed to be without suffering, that suffering is always in some way an indication of faithlessness or failure, Jesus is very clear that we should not be surprised by trouble. Now, maybe the word trouble here sounds a little soft to you. Like maybe Jesus is only saying that in this world we're going to have some light difficulties. But that's not the idea here. The word that the NIV translates as trouble is the Greek word flipson, which is a little hard to say, but kind of fun. Flipson. Flipson. Yeah, yeah, you kind of got to get a lisp going. And flipson. Yeah. And throughout the New Testament, this word is used to describe some very hard things. So, for example, just above our passage in John 16, Jesus says this. He says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish, the flipson, because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So this word flipson can can capture the pain of childbirth. And then in the book of Acts, the apostles are trying to explain to the new converts what it's going to mean for them to enter into this new Christian life, and they say this, we must go through many hardships many flips in to enter into the kingdom of God. And surely they have in mind the persecutions and the imprisonments that they've undergone. And then finally, think about this from the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles, the flips in, that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Flipson can be so powerful that one can despair even of living. And so this trouble is no trifling matter. It's no light burden. So when Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble, he's not soft-pedaling the situation. He's giving us the hard-edged and mature truth of the matter. No childish suggestions that with more faith or more good decisions, we can live lives untouched by suffering and chock full of material blessings. 
We are, after all, talking about the crucified one here who set his face like flint to go to the cross and who didn't hesitate to tell us that if we would choose to be his disciples, that we would have to follow in those very footsteps to that very same cross. What else should we have expected from the one who said that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? How could we have thought that we are going to be able to follow, follow the homeless, wandering God-man, but stay untouched from suffering ourselves. That was always a silly proposition. Not one that could ever have withstood adult scrutiny. So I myself am grateful for the honest realism of Jesus' teaching here. In this world, you and I are going to have some trouble. Now, there's a serious philosophical and theological question nearby. Justin mentioned this. Why is it we can sensibly wonder that the world has such hardships at all? Right? Why hasn't God created a world in which deep suffering doesn't exist or it's easy to dodge? And my hope is that we can think further about that question on Tuesday night for those of you who are available. As Justin hinted, I'm supposed to be some kind of expert on questions of this kind about the problem of evil. Take that for what it's worth. Okay. Um, but I'll look forward to thinking more deeply about this problem with those of you who are available on Tuesday. It might just be Laurie and I. That'd be fine. Maybe, maybe it'll just be me. I don't, you're, yeah, yeah. You're, no, no certainty that Laurie's coming. That's right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Okay, but I'm uh, part of. The, I'm afraid that taking up those questions. The reason we need to leave them for Tuesday is that taking up these questions here would lead us away from the central points that Jesus wants to make in the passage that we've looked at today. Because what Jesus emphasizes in our passage is not any kind of explanation for the existence of suffering or any justification for God's allowing it. Instead, Jesus focuses on the fact that peace is possible even in the midst of our trouble. In Jesus, we can have peace even in the face of our hardships. So he says, it's in me that you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble, but in me, you can have peace. So notice that peace and trouble are compatible. You can have them both at the same time. And this is because we can be in Jesus and in the world at the same time. Indeed, I hope that most of you are. We need to think further about just what this peace is, but we're getting a clue about it here already from what we've just seen. Peace is not the absence of trouble. It's not the removal of hardship or the elimination of suffering. It's something much more positive and full. The Hebrew word for peace that Jesus surely has in mind here when he's, when he's teaching is shalom. And shalom's a very rich word that touches on everything that's deeply good for a person, what most fully contributes to her flourishing. Your shalom is what makes your life go well overall. So another picture of biblical peace is of a kind of internal unity or harmony, one in which I'm not in conflict with myself, but I'm unified by confidence that my ultimate good is secure that it can't be taken away from me, that I don't have to worry about my final overall well-being. See, part of what makes suffering and trouble so burdensome is that they come with a kind of self-doubt, with a loss of confidence that my good really is secure. 
And troubles can turn me against myself and therefore cause me to lose peace, cause me to lose this shalom. And in the world, that's what we should expect. But we're not only in the world, we are also in him. And so peace is possible for us. Harmony is a real option. So let me tell you about Julian of Norwich, if you don't know about her. She was a 14th century Christian mystic. And she wrote the revelations of divine love to describe her experience of Jesus as she endured a sickness that nearly killed her when she was about 30 years old. And throughout these revelations that she receives, Jesus is exceptionally tender to her. He's responding to her worries about her own sinfulness and imperfections with grace and patience. And at the heart of the tenderness of Jesus is this constant refrain that Julian hears from Jesus. Here's the refrain. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of thing will be well. I'm praying for each of you that you hear these words from the tender heart of Jesus this morning too. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of thing will be well. In your diagnosis, all is ultimately going to be well. In your depression, all will ultimately be well. In your divorce, in your addiction, in the struggles in your family life or with your friends, all will ultimately be well. Because to have peace, to have biblical peace, is to have confidence that this is true that all is ultimately going to be well. But you might be thinking now, like, well, Dan, aren't you soft-pedaling this now? Is this confidence that all will ultimately be well any more mature and realistic than the silly view that God would take away all of our troubles and make us rich? I hope it is. I hope it's more realistic than that. But be sure to hear me clearly. The peace that I take Jesus to be offering comes with no promise that today we will be healed or employed, or reconciled with those whose hearts we've broken, though I certainly pray for these things for you and for me. Now, the peace that's on offer is the possibility of confidence in God's ability to bring you and me into our highest good, even though our troubles may continue. And if you hear in what I'm saying any suggestion that this means that your troubles are really not so bad after all, then you're not hearing me correctly. So it's natural to ask, how can we get this peace? How do we get the confidence that all will ultimately be well, even in the midst of our darkest troubles? How do we get the internal harmony based on God's final goodness to each of us? I wish I had a three-step plan for you. I wish I had a supplement that I could just offer you, you take with lunch. I wish I had a YouTube clip that just explained it out, just laid it out. I don't have any of those things. What I do have is a moderately embarrassing story about Justin, my son. Okay. So, okay. Okay. so when, when Justin was young, he had trouble with inhaling. Okay. That sounds, it probably sounds a little worse than it is. So here's what I mean. He really did literally have trouble filling up his lungs with a full intake of air. 
So I first started to realize this when he started, when he started swimming. And he couldn't hold his breath for very long at all. Like, he would just pop his head underwater and pop back up. And I'd be like, well, you know, that's, you've got to hold your breath. And so I noticed that this seemed to be, he was having this trouble because he didn't take a deep breath before going under the water. And so I remember trying to explain to him that he needed to do this. You've got to take a deep breath, hold it, and then when you go under, you'll be able to, you'll be able to stay underwater longer. And that's when the trouble emerged. Because I had to show him how to take a deep breath. Think about that for a second. To show him how to take a deep breath. How would you do that if a child asked you, but wait, how do you take a deep breath? I mean, the only thing I thought I could do, and what I did is I just kept doing it in front of him, right? Imitate it. Like, you just do this. But it didn't work that well initially because Justin imitated my bodily movements. He, he went, stood up straight and he expanded his chest and he filled up his mouth. You know. But I was like, I could see, like, buddy, the air is in your cheeks. You it's got to go back in your lungs, right? So, you know, and I'm saying things like, no, p- take it into your lungs. But you can see that's totally unhelpful, right? Because that's just the problem he's having. I'm just giving words to the thing that he doesn't know how to do. Okay, so what happened when he eventually got it? He did eventually get it, by the way. I think, uh, I think yeah, I think we can confirm. You can check with him on this, but I think he, na- he can now fill his lungs with air. Um, he can breathe in. Okay, so that's good. Okay, what happened when he finally succeeded? Well, here's the thing. He just did it, right? He actually breathed the air into his lungs, and he felt the distinctive feel, the aha of, oh, that's what it is to have the air fill my lungs. And part of the deep challenge of the Christian life is that many of the things we have to learn in order to follow in the way of Jesus are like learning to inhale. The words are inadequate, and even the examples don't really get at it, what's going on on the inside. We don't get it until we actually do it and feel what it's like for ourselves. So to pray, to trust God, to receive forgiveness, to give forgiveness to another, to serve others unselfishly, these are things that you only understand really once you do them. And so they're like learning to inhale. And I think this is especially true of having the peace that Jesus offers us, even in the face of hardships. So I'm going to try to get you to breathe it in this morning, to try to fill your lungs with it. But my examples, I know, are going to come up short. So come back to our verse What might help us with our inhaling is the way that Jesus sets up his final words. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I have told you these things so that you can have the peace. So there's supposed to be some kind of causal or supportive connection between what Jesus has told them in his farewell address and the possibility of their having this peace. So we should think a little further about what Jesus has said in this address. Now, we don't have time here this morning to go through the farewell address carefully, but maybe some of you this morning are feeling especially peaceless. Maybe the hardships of life are making it seem particularly impossible for you to have the kind of peace that Jesus says is available to us. If you're in this boat this morning, 
It might make good sense for you to commit to reading and praying through chapters 14 through 16 of John this week, listening carefully for the many ways that what Jesus says in these chapters can ground your confidence that all is ultimately going to be well. We don't have time for that here this morning. But what we can do is at least mine that farewell address for a central theme I want to give you as a ground for our peace in the face of trouble. So here's some of what we get from Jesus' farewell discourse. Remember that he's preparing his disciples for the fact that he's going to be going to the cross and he's going to be leaving them, as he says, for a little while. How does he encourage them in the light of his departure? Well, the first thing he does is he explains that he's going to prepare a place for them. He's promising to be sure to bring them to where he will be. So the disciples will ultimately be with Jesus. And the second thing he does in the farewell address is he promises the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus leaves, God the Father is not going to leave the disciples without his presence, but will come to them in the way that only the Spirit of God can. He's going to be present with them even in an even more intimate way than he had been before by living inside them, by counseling and comforting them from the very core of their own being. And so a central message of the farewell address is this. He is not going to leave us alone. And this is what I want you to breathe in this morning. You're not alone. He's with you. I want you to fill your lungs up with this truth, that he's with you in your trouble. You're not alone in your sickness. You're not alone in your depression You're not alone in the family distress or the loss of hope or the financial instability that you're presently facing. He's with you. The Apostle Paul felt this presence profoundly, and he puts it like this in Romans 8. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, that is, thlipson, or hardship, or persecution, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, it's got to cover all his bases here, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, it's going to be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so I have told you these things, he says, so that in me you may have peace. And what has he told us? He's told us that we are not alone that he's with us. The possibility of our peace is grounded in the promise of his presence. And notice that our peace is in the presence of the one who's overcome the world, who's conquered it. So what's this overcoming? Here's my claim. I claim it's this, that in his incarnation, his life, his death and resurrection, Jesus has ensured that the world's patterns of destruction will not ultimately carry the day. The world functions to alienate us from each other and from God. But the overcoming one guarantees that it will not succeed in the end. And this is because Jesus has broken the system. He's the cosmic wrench in the gears. Paul says it this way, that Jesus has canceled the charge which stood against us and condemned us He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities of this world, he's made a public spectacle of them 
triumphing over them by the cross. So our peace comes from being in the presence of the one who has overcome the world. The disciples uh, knew something about the power of the presence of Jesus, of course. They'd been in his presence when he healed the sick, when he reunified, reunified those who had been twisted by demonic powers, when he'd converted a child's lunch into a meal for thousands, when he'd chided death by calling Lazarus from out of the tomb. And if we let our minds go, we can imagine that there must have been countless other times when the disciples were simply comforted by the presence of Jesus, when just having him near put them at ease or gave them hope or relieved a fear of whatever was looming. And I know that many of us can attest to the power of the presence of Jesus in our lives in similar ways. In his presence, we've seen the transformation of broken lives. We've seen the restoration of health in body, mind, and soul. There's great power in the presence of Jesus. But I want to challenge us about that this morning. It's true. Very often, the presence of Jesus comes with great power. The power to change our circumstances or our attitudes, the power to provide comfort and confidence. But our peace is not in this power. Our peace is in the presence of Jesus himself. And the peace that Jesus offers comes from being in him, whether or not he exerts his power to heal or uphold. So think of the Apostle Paul pleading with the Lord three times to remove the thorn from his flesh, whatever that was. But though Paul is in the presence of Jesus, this did not end in the exertion of power to remove the thorn. Rather, Jesus said to Paul, my grace, my presence is sufficient for you. The promise of peace is the promise of his presence, not the promise of power. So with that in mind, I want you to return to your troubles. I want you to think back again about your flipsin, because flipsin happens. Think about the concrete hardships we brought to mind when we got started together. And I assume those haven't been far from your thinking. And as you're thinking of these troubles, and here, of course, I'm thinking of my anxiety, I remind you of the promise of the presence of Jesus in the midst of it. Confidence, the possibility of confidence that all will ultimately be well because we rest in the presence of of the one who's overcome. And I ask you to consider this. I ask you to consider whether his presence is, for now, enough for you. Hear that. I ask you to consider whether his presence, for now, is enough for you. Of course, we pray for the end of our suffering, for the removal of the mental health challenge, for the restoration of the marriage for the healing of our child, for the opening of new vocational doors. And in his masterful teaching on prayer, Jesus insists that we ask to be delivered from evil. We don't stop asking for this. But I want you to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that they were standing with Nebuchadnezzar, who was threatening to throw them into the fiery furnace. And this is what the three Hebrew children said. We know that our God can protect us from the flames, but even if he does not, We want you to know that we will not bow down. So similarly, we pray for healing and for power and for comfort. But even if they do not come, his presence can be enough for us. So he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. My goal this morning has been mostly to encourage you. 
And in the midst of our hardship, God's plan for us is peace. And I'm praying that Jesus' words in John 16 will awaken you to fresh possibilities of peace and hope in him that will lead you into some overcoming of your own. But my encouragement this morning has come with a challenge I hope you won't miss, okay? It's a challenge to avoid a certain kind of idolatry, the idolatry of substituting Christ's power for his simple presence. The saving power is real, and we should ask for it. We should be asking for it constantly and desperately. But our peace isn't in that power. Our peace is in Jesus himself. And now an admission. In the case of my own anxiety, I recall being confronted by Jesus about my idolatry. I was in the middle of a strong episode of my anxiety in which I was worrying that I was going to be unable to do my job. I was going to be unable to support my family because of the incapacitation that the anxiety was creating. And so I was asking God to remove the anxiety, but I was asking in a condemning and accusatory tone with a kind of doubt that God really cared about me. All I wanted, I was saying, was the ability to have command over my own thoughts and fears. I just wanted to be able to think straight. Was that so much to ask? And frankly, I was sounding a bit too much like Job just before the whirlwind arrives. And God's response came not from a whirlwind, but in the form of a question. And here was the question. Dan, he asked me, what do you want more, me or your cognitive abilities? Of course, I wanted both. And I didn't take the question to be a way of telling me that I couldn't eventually have both. But what about right now? Right now, Dan, what would you choose? And I realized in that moment that my attitude toward my anxiety was verging on a form of idolatry because I was very close to saying that I wanted my abilities more than I wanted his presence. And I repented then. I've repented a few times since then. And maybe you have a little repenting to do too. If you can admit that his presence has not always been enough for you. So I want to conclude this morning with a kind of prayer, an imaginative prayer. So let me ask you to join me closing your eyes prayerfully. I'm going to ask you to take a few moments to seek to become aware of the presence of Jesus with you here. And I know this isn't easy, but the first step is to breathe in his presence, to give yourself permission to let him, give him, God permission to work in your mind and heart, to let your guard down, to feel yourself letting go of your resistance to his love. And from here, I want you to let your mind bring you to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Because I want you to enter into an important event in the life of the disciples of Jesus. So picture yourself as one of Jesus' disciples, getting into a boat with him and the rest of his disciples at the end of a long day filled with watching Jesus teach the crowds and heal the sick. And the boat you're getting into is large enough for all of you It's about eight feet wide. It's about 25 feet long. A single mast and a small sail in the middle and with oars for rowing. 
As the boat heads away from shore, you can envision the surroundings. The lake is smooth and calm. Hear the sounds of the oars creaking and splashing, the sound of the seabirds that are following the boat. Look around at the bowl of hills that are encircling the lake and hear the voices of the more experienced fishermen directing the progress of the boat. And now you're out a good distance from the shore and all is calm. Your mind and your body are at ease in the comfortable progress of the boat. But now you see the approach of darkening clouds. The wind is picking up and the chop of the sea is rising. An unexpected storm looks to be forming. And you can feel the level of anxiety in you and the other disciples rising too, especially for the experienced boatmen. And the weather turns dangerous quickly, with the wind swirling now and the sail lowered and flapping useless, and the visibility dropping as the rolling clouds cover the lake and hide the sun. You're now in the middle of real danger. The waves are coming over the sides from different angles, and the rocking of the boat has it perilously close to capsizing. The men in charge are giving various anxious orders. Some men are rowing uselessly. Some are bailing water. And some, like you, are white-knuckling your handholds to keep from being thrown around or out of the boat altogether. Now, at the height of the danger, you remember this. You remember that Jesus is with you. And your attention turns to look for him. And Mark describes it this way. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. So I ask you to see Jesus now in the back of the boat, comfortably asleep on a cushion. I want you to take this scene in. The storm is raging around. The sounds of fear and desperation are blowing in the wind. And see Jesus. Let him come into focus in peaceful sleep in the midst of the chaos and terror. And I want you to just see him sleeping there for a moment. And now while you're watching him sleep there in the center of the storm, I ask you to hear these words of his from John 14. There he is asleep on the cushion, and here are his words. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. My peace I give you. The very peace that allowed him to sleep there in this storm the great confidence that all will ultimately be well that's illustrated by his head on that cushion, that very peace is what he is giving to you this morning. And I ask that you take some moments to receive that peace prayerfully with gratitude.